When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us for another busy show this Tuesday, just ahead this hour. Florida forewarned Idalia strengthening in the Gulf Coast. It could be a powerful Category 3 hurricane when it hits land on Wednesday. Mandatory evacuations are underway across the state. Idalia already bringing heavy rains and strong winds to Cuba too. Complete coverage of the storm's path just ahead. Plus, trade teamwork. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo meeting with top Chinese officials on Tuesday during her ongoing trip to Beijing. China's premier promising new efforts to boost trade cooperation. The U.S. delegation saying it's not seeking a Chinese decoupling. We've got a live report just ahead. And Garden Gloom. Troubled Chinese property developer Country Garden set to report first half results on Wednesday. The firm already warning of a more than $7.5 billion loss. The Financial Times saying it's looking for a 40-day grace period to pay back debt maturing next week to stave off default. Chinese investors taking the news, it seems, in their stride on Tuesday helped along. I think in large part by Beijing's stock trading tax cut that we discussed on the show on Monday. Hong Kong's government also announcing a new task force today to, quote, enhance stock market liquidity too. Officials looking to lift stocks out of their bear market slump. Bloomberg also reporting today that China's state banks may cut rates on mortgages and on deposits to help boost consumer and investor confidence, the latter, of course, to push money out into the system. Meanwhile, some caution, as you can imagine, ahead of the U.S. Open after the major averages managed a second straight day of gains on Monday. Wall Street's first back-to-back gains this month, in fact. Europe also, as you can see there, green higher across the board and sitting at near two-week highs. We've got a busy show ahead, as always, but we do begin in Florida as frantic hurricane preparation begins. The Gulf Coast bracing for life-threatening storm surges and damaging winds as Hurricane Idalia heads for landfall north of the city of Tampa. Warnings being issued of tropical storm gusts and flash flooding even before the hurricane reaches land. Mandatory evacuation orders are in force in at least 10 different counties. And it's not just the United States that's preparing for the worst. More than 8,000 people have been evacuated from coastal areas of western Cuba, too. And you can see some of those images from Monday in front of you. CNN's Patrick Ottman is in the capital city, Havana, for us now. And Patrick, I think your face says it all. I can see the rain and the water behind you. Reconsidering my life choices here, but uh, we are we are getting drenched uh, here in Havana, even as this storm uh, pulls away from Cuba and as it goes into the Straits of Florida, uh, gains uh, really dangerous power. Uh, but this is just the remnants. Uh, we are all quite a bit way ways away from the center of the storm, and you can just hear it. It is 
drenching us. Uh, this morning I looked at the skies, it was completely clear, and then several times we've had these bands of rain, and we look out uh, of our view uh, across Savannah, and the city just disappears in sort of this haze uh, of white, and uh, it's absolutely drenching, freezing cold rain, which is uh, unusual, certainly for Cuba. And then here you see behind me all these people, dozens of people taking cover here, and uh, they're just trying to get out of uh, this storm that has come down uh, all around us and is leading to flooding, is leading to massive power cuts uh, throughout the island, uh, the province to the west of us, Pinar del Rio, that has got much harder hit uh, than we have. Uh, you were talking about hundreds of thousands of people who are without power. And again, uh, when the storm came by Cuba, it was a tropical storm and then turned into a hurricane this morning. Much, much less powerful than what uh, than what Florida is going to face, but but still for all of us who are right here, as you can see, uh, a still very punishing storm. You don't want to be out in the street when something like this is going on. It is not safe to drive. It is not safe to be out there walking right now. Uh, we were out earlier and we had all our equipment blown over by just uh, one gust. So it can come up and surprise you. It can be very, very powerful. And uh, I can tell you this will lead to days of cleanup here in Cuba, even if we miss the worst of it. Uh, for those who have felt the brunt of the storm here in Cuba, uh, it was certainly bad enough. Yeah, and it's challenging, as we mentioned, around 8,000 people from coastal areas having to evacuate. Where do they go? Because that's the big decision that people have to make. Do we stay at home? Do we sit this out? Do we risk it? Or do we, we evacuate and, and go somewhere else? These are tough choices, whether they're where you are or, of course, the decisions that are being made now in Florida. Very much so. And, and, and by the time that, that many people realize it's time to evacuate, uh, it's too late. So here in Cuba, people either go to government evacuation centers, which are uh, very bare bones because of the lack of resources in this country, or they go stay with, with family or friends. But what people will tell you again and again is they don't want to evacuate because they're so afraid of losing their houses, and many times the few possessions they have. So they choose to ride it out. After all, you're on an island. You can only evacuate so far. And certainly for the western end of this island, the entire western section of this island, from Havana all the way to the very end of Cuba. It is just getting drenched right now. Uh, very powerful winds, uh, very uh, dangerous flooding conditions when you're talking about a mountainous region like the western part of Cuba that can lead to mudslides. We've already seen some trees come down uh, and so many without power right now. That means that they're without communication. So you really, uh, when a storm like this comes along, you just have to hunker down and, and try to ride out as best as you can because at least for the hours uh, to come, probably the rest of today, help is not going to be able to, to get to you. Yeah. Patrick Altman there. Um, try and stay dry. I know you're looking pretty wet at this stage. And uh, please don't reconsider your life choices because we appreciate you and we need you there. Patrick, thank you thank for you. now. Okay, meanwhile, in Florida, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, is standing by to send in resources too. A little earlier, my colleague Sarah Seidner asked FEMA's administrator about what's being planned. We have been engaged uh, with Florida's Emergency Management Department for several days now. We've also been in touch with um, our officials in uh, Georgia as well as North Carolina and South Carolina as they will also feel some impacts from this. Uh, our preparation getting ready for this has been to move our resources in. We have uh, urban search and rescue teams that are on standby to support the state with any life-saving needs that they have. We have the Army Corps of Engineers ready to support any power generation missions that they might need. Uh, we have teams that are ready to go out into the community door-to-door -to, -door to help understand what the impacts are. Um, after
after the storm passes and it's safe to do so. And so we will continue to move forces in um, to be ready to respond at Florida's request to come in after the storm passes to begin helping with any life-saving and then beginning any recovery efforts as needed. We are looking at the map right now, right next to you. We're seeing places like Port St. Lucie and Tampa, Cedar Key, a lot of area covered by this hurricane potentially. Can you give us some sense of what residents in these places should be doing in case they have major damage? Should they be taking pictures? What should they be bringing with them to make sure that they are safe and that their property is potentially safe in all of this? I think the most important thing right now for all Floridians is to make sure that they know where they're at and what their risk is going to be as it relates to this storm. Um, it is a Category 1 now. We expect it to intensify. We expect it to make landfall as pa- uh, possibly a Category 3. Um, but it's also the storm surge that's so significant. And so the first thing that I just want to tell everybody in Florida is listen to your local officials. If they ask you to evacuate, please do so. And it doesn't mean you have to go hundreds of miles. It could just be 10 or 20 miles inland to get out of that main area. If you are asked to evacuate, definitely take your important documents with you so you have those. So after you go back in and it's safe to go back in and you start to assess the damage, you have all of your important documents like insurance papers and identification um, to be able to start a recovery process. In the meantime, security has been tightened outside several cemeteries in St. Petersburg, Russia, amid speculation that the funeral of Wagner boss Evgeny Prigozhin may be taking place there. Police checkpoints and metal detectors have been set up at gates of a cemetery that's usually reserved for military burials. We still don't know any details surrounding the funeral. Matthew Chance is in St. Petersburg and has the latest. Well, we're, we're in St. Petersburg, but we're also in this, the Serifmovsky uh, Cemetery, which is this huge uh, cemetery uh, in the middle of St. Petersburg, or on the outskirts of it at least, uh, where we expect or where we think uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the Wagner leader, could be buried either later on today or possibly tomorrow. We don't know for sure because the trouble is there's a veil of secrecy over these arrangements, you know, and so we're we're trying to sort of sort of get as much access as we can and look at what evidence we can uh, to to try and determine when the funeral might take place. Certainly there's nothing official being said to us about when it would happen. But of course, it was just at the weekend uh, that the uh, Russian investigators said that they identified his remains and had confirmed that he'd been killed on that plane crash last Wednesday. Uh, And look here, the security uh, that has been placed outside this uh, cemetery as well. You've got uh, police that have been put outside or uh, security forces from the interior ministry, in fact, and also these metal detectors. And anybody who comes through is having to unload their pockets like it was an airport or something like that and is being uh, is being searched. Uh, that's not normal in a cemetery here in St. Petersburg. And so, you know, that's obviously an indication that some big kind of funeral is uh, is being planned. But again, a veil of secrecy uh, across the whole across the whole situation. What we do know is the Kremlin. Uh, who are trying to play this down, have said this morning that that Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, will not be attending uh, any funeral. They're saying that it is purely a family uh, affair. Um, And, you know, again, that that talks to the idea that Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin and officially they don't want to get involved in this any more than they absolutely have to. Of course, the Kremlin has dismissed as absolute lies allegations that they were in some way involved in the plane crash that killed Yevgeny Prigozhin and nine other people uh, last week. But despite those denials, there's still a lot of suspicion here in Russia 
elsewhere around the world as well, there could have been some kind of uh, state involvement. And, uh, and so I think that's why the Kremlin are trying to distance themselves as much as possible uh, from, the, from the next stage in this process, which is the funeral arrangements. And as we wait for more images of that, a rare look inside a Russian prison. New videos showing American Paul Whelan has been released by Russian state media. In it, you can see Whelan in a prison uniform, as well as images of him using a sewing machine and eating in a cafeteria. Whelan has been held by Russia since 2018 and sentenced to 16 years in a Russian prison on an espionage charge. His brother David said this was the first time he's seen what Paul looked like since June of 2020. Earlier this month, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke to Whelan, who has been deemed wrongly detained by the U.S. government. The Biden administration continues to reiterate to Russia their proposal for Whelan's release. Now, officials from the world's two largest economies saying all the right things during their latest attempt to mend trade ties in Beijing. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo meeting today with the Chinese Premier as part of her four-day China visit. Both sides insist that they are committed to boosting bilateral ties, but restoring trust could be a long-term challenge. China's Premier reportedly warning the U.S. of, quote, politicizing trade. And Gina Raimondo saying the U.S. will stand up to China when it violates the rule of law. Christy Lustout joins us now. Christy, great to have you um, to talk about this information exchange, which is what they have agreed to, surely can only be a good thing where some of these tensions and concerns are, um, are concerned. The question is, perhaps, will it lead to some kind of easing of the bans on things like tech chips? Yeah, and that is what Gina Raimondo is out to do, to ease the tensions in this critical relationship. And earlier today, um, the U.S. Commerce Secretary met with China's premier as she seeks to manage this very complicated relationship and somehow shore up trade ties between the world's two largest economies. Earlier today, the two met at the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. And from there, we heard from the Chinese Premier Li Qiang, who said this. Let's bring up the pick quote for you. He said this, quote, economic and trade relations are the ballast for Sino-U.S. relations. A well-maintained economic and trade relationship is beneficial to both countries and the whole world, unquote. Romando, for her part, she agreed with Li. And then she went on to say that the U.S. wants to work with China on global concerns like the fentanyl crisis, like climate, like AI. Uh, earlier in the day, she met with a Chinese vice premier, He Lifeng, where she re-emphasized that message that we keep hearing from senior cabinet secretaries that the U.S. does not want to decouple from China, but will not compromise protecting its national security. Earlier, Raimondo also met with China's tourism minister, and China urged the U.S. to increase direct flights with China. This visit, it comes at a critical time for China because there's a lot of concerns about the Chinese economy. It's facing this long laundry list of issues like slumping exports, like deflation, like the ongoing and deepening property crisis, like high youth unemployment with data so bad that the government recently stopped publishing that data. U.S.-China tensions have flared over geopolitical issues, but especially over trade and over access to sensitive technology like chips, like semiconductors. But given China's economic dire straits right now, you know, the pressure really is on to to boost commercial activity and to ultimately stabilize a relationship that, as Ramondo pointed out yesterday, is worth more than $700 billion in annual trade. Back to you, Julie. Yes. And as economic growth slows in China, it's um, arguably worth a lot more to try and boost these ties and reduce some of these tensions. Christy, what yep. else is on the agenda? 
Well, tomorrow, uh, Gina Raimondo will be leaving Beijing for Shanghai, and she is due to visit Shanghai Disneyland, which is the joint venture between Disney and the Shundi Group, a state-owned company in China. She's also expected to meet with additional U.S. business leaders in China, and she's going to hear more of these voices very critical about the operating in China. They're going to share more about the challenges of operating in China, the need for market access. The day is going to culminate around 4.55 p.m. local time with an on-the-record digital debriefing with the U.S. Commerce Secretary, where she will talk to the greater public about what she achieved, what she discussed in China. And that will cap off her visit, a visit that started on Sunday in Beijing, ending four days later, Wednesday, in Shanghai. Julia. Chrissy Lustad, great to have you on. Thank you very much for that. Now, Toyota is suspending operations at all of its Japanese assembly plants after a technical glitch disrupted its finely tuned supply chain. The automaker says at this stage it doesn't believe the system failure was caused by a cyber attack. Anna Stewart joins us now. Well, Anna, the good news is, and I'm going to steal it from you, actually, (laughs) we're out of date because as of the last, what, 30 minutes, they're saying they're going to resume production in Japan on Wednesday. However... A few hours ago, we weren't sure about that. What happened? We're talking about the world's largest automaker by sales. Listen, this is the hope that by the end of tomorrow, all of their factories are back up and running. And there was also the good news that they believe, according to the statement, uh, that the malfunction of the system isn't relating to a cyber attack. And of course, that's where your mind goes. And actually, we know that Toyota's suppliers have been targeted by cyber attacks before, and it has caused a factory shutdown in the past. Less good news, I would say, is the fact that they're continuing to investigate the cause of this issue. This was a massive glitch. They're calling it a malfunction in the production order system. As I understand it, this just made processing orders of new car parts incredibly difficult or perhaps actually impossible given how big the shutdown was. And that matters, particularly in just-in-time manufacturing. The beauty of a car factory, and I'm sure you've been to a fair few yourself, Julia, is that the parts arrive within hours of going into a car. Car plants don't have huge inventories. They don't waste money on warehousing. And actually... We saw the fragility of this very efficient system, I think, uh, with a shortage in semiconductors. Because they didn't have big inventories, uh, we saw a huge impact on production there. Now, I think there will be hopes that they know exactly what did cause this so it doesn't happen again. Just to give you uh, an idea of how big it was, 14 factories closed today, multiple production lines. That's more than 13,000 vehicles a day. That is how many cars and vans and other vehicles that Toyota produces in Japan. It's around a third of their global production. And as you said, this is the world's biggest car maker. Yes, this is sort of redefining the term just in time <laughs> supply chains, like completely out of time. Yeah. Um, they've got to get to the bottom of this, haven't they, and work out what happened and uh, hopefully prevent it ever happening again. Um, we shall see. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, straight ahead. Spain's defiant football president appears to be running out of allies after that unwanted kiss. Details next on who else is calling for him to step down. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. 
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. The wait goes on for disgraced president of the Spanish Football Federation, Luis Rubiales, to resign. On Monday night, in a dramatic U-turn, his own organization demanded he step down as they try and recover from the scandal that's engulfed them. The football chief's unsolicited kiss of Jenny Hermoso has overshadowed the Spanish Women's World Cup success just 10 days ago. Atika Schubert joins us live now from Madrid. Atika, it feels like far longer than 10 days ago, quite frankly. It's a, it's a mess for many reasons, and I think the silence from UEFA now is completely deafening. Just to be clear, we haven't heard from Ubialis himself, have we, since we heard him speaking defiantly last week? No, we haven't had a peep from him. Uh, and so far, there are no signs that he's going to resign anytime soon. This despite the fact that the regional heads of the Federation stayed up late into the night last night at this office building here, trying to find a way out and ultimately came out with a statement that said he should resign as soon as possible. But it looks like he's going to have to be forced out. And for that to happen, it's going to take a lot of steps. Basically, uh, the Council for Sport, which is a government body, has now said that it uh, has put in uh, the information that is needed for a tribunal, a tribunal that would then investigate uh, the allegations, look at the incident and have a ruling. And once the tribunal decides whether or not it's going to go ahead, then there is the possibility that he will be suspended. But all of this is going to take a lot of time. There are a lot of hoops to jump through, so it doesn't look like he's going to be going anywhere anytime soon. This is one of the reasons why there's been such increasing pressure on him from the Federation, from a criminal investigation that has now been opened by the prosecutor, by the players themselves who have said that they will not play unless he resigns, and of course from other people who have put their support for the player Ginny Hermoso and have condemned Rubiales' actions. You know, it's fascinating. I've spoken to um, a number of people discussing this, and it's interesting to get the perspectives. There's the perspective that, look, this is just one example of what's become a relatively toxic culture in women's sport in Spain, and we've seen that in other countries. And then I hear the other perspective, which is, look, it was an amazing moment. It was a celebration. It was sort of an innocent kiss in an excited moment. Atika, what the Spanish public saying about what they think happened here and what should happen from here? You know, it's interesting. When it happened, the immediate euphoria and celebration at the World Cup victory, everybody saw these, this video of the sort of exuberant hugs and kisses that he was giving. I should also point out the behavior actually before the celebration, as soon as that victory was actually clinched by the World Cup team, there was video of him grabbing his crotch in victory, and he was sitting next to the Queen of Spain and her 16-year-old daughter, the princess. So it's sort of the combination of all of his actions uh, during this World Cup match that caused a national embarrassment. But what was kind of a small embarrassment then snowballed into a major scandal when he refused to resign over the issues, when he kind of issued a very small but 
perhaps what felt to many of the public here insincere apology. And with that, that's when you saw the anger coming out. That's when you saw the rallies, the banners that said, we are with you, Jenny. And what has become the rallying cry of a sort of Me Too movement here in Spain, se acabó, which means it is over. Uh, and by that, it means not over, not only is it over for Rubiales, but also that it is over for the kind of unwanted kisses, the kinds of attention that, that women have not wanted, particularly in women's sport, and it is over for that kind of structural sexism. So we do seem to be having a major turning point here in Spain. It's certainly a moment. Uh, Tika, great to have you. Thank you. Tika Schubert there in Madrid. Okay, coming up after the break, we'll take you live to Clearwater, Florida, where Hurricane Idalia is strengthening as it approaches land. Our coverage continues after this. Welcome back to First Move. And let's return to Hurricane Idalia, forecast to hit Florida's Gulf Coast on Wednesday. Now, don't be deceived by the beautiful weather in the Tampa Bay city of Clearwater, which is where we find CNN's meteorologist Derek Van Dam. Derek, yeah, the split screen, I think, between what you're seeing and doing today versus what we're expecting to see tomorrow, I think, is going to be pretty unimaginable. Just give us a sense of the storm's path, at least at this stage. Yeah, Julia, I mean, it'll be a completely different story here in Clearwater Beach tomorrow at this time. That is, uh, that is saying it lightly. Uh, and, and we are watching Idalia very closely. But I, I think it's important to note for our viewers that what you're looking at is the very shallow Gulf of Mexico behind me. And uh, this water is warm. Water temperatures here are running uh, up to 2 degrees Celsius above average for this time of year. And you've got to understand something about warm water and hurricanes and typhoons, they like it. They strengthen off of it. And that's exactly what we're seeing with uh, what is now Hurricane Adelia. 130 kilometer per hour winds with the storm right now. So it is a significant category one storm. And uh, there it is just exiting off the coast of Cuba. That's the storm system that uh, brought some heavy rainfall to Havana and some of the mountainous regions over the western portions of Cuba. Uh, some of the rainfall totals there have exceeded 100 millimeters. So that kind of gives us a little bit of an indication of what's to come here along the Florida Peninsula, specifically over the west coast of Florida on the Gulf of Mexico side. There's the latest watches and warnings. You see hurricane warnings? That includes Tampa Bay, high population density, and then the big bend. The, the simple topography of this area makes storm surge so susceptible to uh, the Gulf Coast of the Florida Peninsula, just because it's almost like a catcher's glove. Uh, perhaps for our international viewers, uh, uh, the catcher's glove of cricket, or perhaps the baseball player here in America, that water is going to pile up over the eastern sections of the Gulf of Mexico and literally catch that water on land. And you can see just behind me uh, how flat this coastal area is. Well, this beach stretches for miles and miles and miles. So basically, it never ends. We're talking about maybe 7 to 10 feet above sea level. And so when you're calling for a storm surge of up to 12 feet in some areas of the Big Bend of Florida, uh, you're going to have complete inundation of some of these very prone, prone areas. So there is the forecast track. We've got a Category 3 Atlantic monster coming towards the Florida panhandle uh, and into the Florida Big Bend region, right? So any wobble or deviation west or east has major implications for larger population densities. Tampa Bay uh, into the Port St. Joe region, Apalachicola, those areas uh, that haven't had a direct landfall in quite some time. So 
Uh, it's been a while since this area has uh, felt the effects of a major hurricane. A lot of rain behind this system. We saw it in Cuba. You saw the rainfall totals. So inland flooding will be a concern. Not only will the destructive winds cause damage and power outages, but so, so will that inland flooding. And that's why we have that flash flood threat. So, Julia, we, we are timing this out for our viewers here. If you have family or friends in Florida, the earliest onset of tropical storm force winds, we believe, will be later this afternoon and evening. So the final push for preparations to protect your property, to evacuate if you're told to do so, is right now. Because in a few hours, you won't have that opportunity any longer. Julia? Yeah, smart advice. Derek Van Dam, stay safe, please. And thank you for that. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets have been open for, what, just under six minutes. We'll call it a tentative Tuesday for the major averages. Caution, I think, ahead of a full barrage of U.S. jobs data that could influence the Federal Reserve's interest rate path going forward. New U.S. job opening data, the so-called JOLTS report, is set for release next hour, too. And the all-important U.S. monthly jobs report also out this week on Friday. The state of the U.S. consumer is also in focus. Shares of U.S. electronics retailer Best Buy, they're higher in early trade after an earnings report beat. But it's the latest retailer to warn, too, that consumers are spending with greater discretion. Best Buy seeing sales decline in things like mobile phones, consumer electronics and appliances. And it's lowering its sales outlook for the rest of the year. Interesting. Take note now from Apple Watches to Fitbits. People have become used to a wearable tech to track things like steps and sleep in the health tracker market. The race to add new features and analytics is fierce. And one of those competitors is Aura from Finland. Aura's device is a ring that monitors your heart rate, sleep patterns, body temperature and more. The makers say sensors on the ring provide a more accurate measurement than you'll get with the device worn on your wrist. Its latest feature, called Circles, allows users to create groups in which they can share sleep data and activity scores. And joining us now to discuss all this, Tom Hale. He's the CEO of Aura. Tom, fantastic to have you on the show. You know, our regular viewers will remember having a discussion with your predecessor, actually, when the first iteration of the rings came out. Now, I believe we're on to generation three. So in your own words, what does this ring offer today? Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Uh, Aura is a smart ring that delivers personalized health data, insights, and guidance. Um, our, our members refer to it as a kind of sixth sense, a sort of a superpower that they can wear on their body. Um, the thing that they appreciate is that it, it feels almost like Aura watches over them, supports them, and maybe is a little bit of an accountability buddy as they work on their health. Um, it's convenient, it's a non-invasive form factor, and it prioritizes that combination of accuracy, medical grade, scientific accuracy, with comfort, without any compromise. As you said, it's got all of these great sensors that can track and manage your body, but that's only part of the story because it's also got a software application that gives you guidance along your health journey. We started with sleep, and sleep is critical because it's the daily habit that all of us do, and it has a really profound impact on your health. One good night can make a big difference. And because it measures continuously and overnight, we see your data and we see your baseline so that we can more easily detect a deviation from that and give you a prediction about your health or about your well-being. Aura is amazing. It, it's, it gives your body a voice. 
and it fosters healthy habits. And it's at scale. We've tracked nearly 10 billion hours of continuous tracking and over nearly 3 billion hours of sleep with over a million and a half rings sold. So it's quite the phenomenon right now. Yeah, it centers around those three scores, to your point, sleep, readiness and activity and sort of calibrates based on really how well you sleep, how much you can do the next day in your activity. And I've seen that not just from Aura, but from the numbers. And I think that's the basis of what we're talking about. Sleep is so important. It's part of the reason I think, and when I talk among my friends, why they end up making that decision to get one of these activity trackers, just because they want to see how well or how badly they sleep. But there's also skepticism, I think, when they see that reading and say, hang on a second, I was awake. I just wasn't moving. And that thing says I was sleeping or got deep sleep. Tom, how accurate is this as sort of the basis for activity tracking? So for sleep, obviously, uh, is, is, tracking sleep is something that you can do through a variety of, of methods. And we just recently introduced something called the new sleep staging algorithm. And instead of using just motion, which is how most sleep trackers work, they look for your uh, lack of motion as an indicator that you've transitioned into sleep, which, of course, you know, when you're watching a good Netflix show, you might be so absorbed that you don't move at all. We look at a number of physiological indicators, your heart rate, your temperature, your heart rate variability, as well as motion. And we blend that together in the new sleep staging algorithm, which gives us accuracy that's comparable with the gold standard of sleep staging, which is the polysomnography. I'm sure you've seen the, the electrodes on your forehead and the bands, all the, all the technology that really allows what is called the gold standard for sleep to work. We approach that gold standard like no other wearable simply because we're looking across all the metrics in your body and sampling it at the highest frequency. So 250 megahertz, which means 250 times a second, we're actually looking at the, the, the frequency of information in your body and how that's changing. So every 30 seconds, we're making a, a judgment about whether you're asleep or awake. So it's amazing how, how accurate these uh, technologies have been because these are the technologies that doctors use. We've just packed it into this tiny little ring form factor. You can see some of the technology inside there, made it lightweight, comfortable, something that you wear all the time. And wearing it all the time means that the system knows you because it's personalized to your particular physiology and your particular experience and your particular habits. Yeah. Okay. So this is an important point for me. The second, and you've sort of mentioned it, the sheer amount of data that you're collecting. There's sort of two things. What do you do with the data that you collect? And I know you've offered this circles facility to allow people to share their data. Are there limits on how those people that receive your data can then perhaps share your data with other people? Because you know where I'm headed here in terms of the privacy angle, whether it's for you as a business or for individuals too. We believe that the health data of our members is their property. We, we believe in something we call digital sovereignty. You're the owner of your own data. We don't sell it. We don't market it. We don't merchandise it to anybody. That data is for you and for you alone. We anonymize the data. We keep it secure and private. And by the way, I think that's pretty uh, common these days when you think about the, the data regimes like GDPR or HIPAA, which is the medical privacy. We're not a medical device. But we take your data so very seriously and we make sure that it's available to you. Now, should you wish to share that? And by the way, many of our customers do want to share their data um, in a way to get support along their health journey. Maybe they had a particularly good night of, of sleep or a good day of activity and they want some support for that. Or maybe they had a bad night or they're not feeling well. Their temperature is elevated. They're on, on, on the way to maybe getting sick. Getting that support is really important. 
our approach to it is to keep it really tight. Instead of the typical um, go to the gym and pound your chest and look how many reps I did or how fast I ran, which is how most wearables approach the social problem of sharing, we do it in a very tight circle. We think about who are your uh, intimates, your close friends, your family, who might wanna know exactly how you're doing that day. And what we see, this is fascinating, we see people changing their behaviors based on the data that they see. So for example, um, maybe uh, someone's having a bad day and the, the partner of that person might go home early to help them out or pick up the kids from school or whatever it is. And that kind of awareness of how your uh, partners and friends are doing actually affects how you behave towards them because you now have an awareness of their physiology. Are they doing well? Are they doing poorly? Did they sleep well? Did they exercise enough? And that's a really powerful connection because of course, we've all been through a giant health crisis and one of the observations about COVID is people were constantly asking each other, how are you doing? How can I be supportive of you? Now I can tell you. Um, okay, I wanna talk about cost because the product itself, $299. You can also pay a subscription as well. And I know some of the features you don't have to pay for that, but that's just shy of $6 a month too. If there's any criticism of, um, the ring itself that I've looked at and I've sort of scanned the web to get a sense of. It's that a Fitbit or an iWatch tracks activity better, just in real time in particular. And this is quite limited to the, to the level of exercise options that you have. Do you see the ring being worn along with perhaps then a Fitbit or an iWatch or some other product? Because you have add the cost of that onto the cost of a ring and then the subscription. It's, it's kind of adding up, particularly given the introduction that I, I made, suggesting that people are being a little bit more sort of, well, acting with a bit more discretion over how much they spend. Of course, and, and I think the, the reality is that different people have different needs. People who are highly active during the day and want all the extra features of a smartwatch, maybe notifications and the ability to manage um, all sorts of things during the day, they can use the smartwatch. And by the way, many of them use a ring simply because they want their ring to track their behavior at night and their, their metrics and physiology at night. So we actually see quite a number of people who are super optimizers or super athletic wearing both. That's not uncommon. I think roughly about a third of our customers also own an Apple Watch. Now, that being said, for many people who are not trying to optimize every minute of their lives, the activity tracking the Oura Ring is quite suitable. In fact, our approach to it is very different from how most uh, wearables work. We do track your heart rate. We can have you start a workout and you can track your workout and get your heart rate rate trace for running, cycling, um, the typical kinds of, of workouts. But what our philosophy says is that we should be focused on all movement counting. So in the background, we're automatically giving you credit for all kinds of activities, observing your behaviors and accrediting those activities to the kinds of things you're doing. So you might get actually, you know, workout credit for walking the dog or doing some work around the house or whatever it is that is actually getting your body to move because we believe that all movement counts. So for many people, they just use the ring as an activity tracker. They're not concerned with, did I elevate my heart rate as I was walking the dog? They just want to know, did I get my workout in or did I get enough activity in? And that's part of what Aura does is it learns your behavior and gives you that feedback about whether or not you're getting enough activity, if you're standing up, moving your body around enough to keep you healthy. And that's really key because as we all know, activity is one of the great uh, one of the great benefits alongside of the sleep and diet and, and nutrition, which are, are critical for your health. So in many ways, um, we find that a lot of people who are really focused on optimizing want to use both. 
and partially because the battery life of the ring is something more like seven days. They don't have to charge their smartwatch every night as they try and go to bed and track their sleep. They just wear their ring, they wear it through the day, they wear it through the night, and it tracks their sleep and activity without any overhead or any kind of cognitive load. It's not another digital mouth to feed. Okay, Tom, I think I'm convinced. I don't wear anything because I, I almost don't want to know, but maybe I'm convinced. I've got more to ask you, but we've run out of time. We'll reconvene. Tom Hale, the CEO of Aura. Thank you so much for your time, sir. We're back after Thanks this. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Famous worldwide, the grey zinc roofs of Paris play a starring role in Hollywood movies like this one, offering an iconic backdrop to stars from Tom Cruise to Gene Kelly. Now, covering up to 70% of the city's buildings, they are a landmark in their own right. But as global warming takes its toll, they're being condemned as a climate contradiction with limited insulation properties and their ability to freeze lofts in winter and then boil them during the summer. Now, three MIT graduates think they might have found a simple solution to cover the rooftops with wooden structures on load-bearing walls. Their company, Roofscape Studio, has received funding from the mayor's office in Paris to run a pilot project which should be ready next year and reduce the city's heat island quote effect, which you can see here actually in this infrared image. Olivier Faber is the co-founder of Roofscape Studio and he joins us now. So welcome to the show. I love the concept. I love the way that the company formed because the three of you as co-founders actually were architects, but you decided that the industry itself really wasn't getting to grip with the things that you wanted to fight like climate change and adapt existing buildings. Just start there with the concept and how you found it. Yeah, uh, thank you, Julia, very much for, for having me on the show. We are indeed three co-founders. We met uh, in architecture school seven, eight years ago. And as we worked uh, afterwards in, in firms, uh, we quickly became frustrated, as you, as you were saying, by the lack of disruptive response to the climate crisis from the building sector itself. A vast majority of brains are focusing on new constructions and not renovation or climate adaptation. And we remember vividly the, the summers of 2018 and 2019, which were back to back the hottest summers in, in Europe history at the time. And we kind of saw that for a call of action, a uh, call for action. We decided to quit our jobs and join the MIT School of Architecture and Planning to start Roofscapes and start dealing with climate adaptation on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, brilliant to access designers, to get skills, to access money potentially in the future too. And Tell me how you went from there then and recognizing that I think Europe is sort of an obvious place to start because what two thirds of the roofs in some of the cities are are pitched. So it's an it's perhaps an obvious place to start, particularly Paris, given the challenges there. Yeah. Yeah. So so zinc along zinc of roofs of Paris, but along with many other CD materials like asphalt or concrete, so all kind of metals absorb a ton of solar radiation and then radiate this heat back into the city. And this causes a, an enormous distortion in the city's temperature called the urban heat island effect, as you were saying, creating temperatures up to 10 degrees higher inside cities than in, in neighboring rural areas. At the global scale, we know why, why all of those uh, heat waves are happening. We know that the hotter climates are moving away from the equator and sliding into lands that used to be cooler and, and more tempered. So heat waves are really a new issue for, for France, as it is for a lot of states in the US. And it seemed like a, a really good place to start because those poses significant threats 
the health and the well-being of populations because the, the city is not ready for, for weathering such temperatures. In yeah. fact, health agencies in, in France and have already started to ramp up their capacities to care for people during heat waves. Uh, but they're now calling on architects and planners saying, well, there is only so much we can do on the health side because the building fabric is the real lever. So you need to adapt the city at scale. And, and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, the scale point there, word there is the key is how do we do this on an insignificant size? What's the cost of the building that you're planning to do? And we should see that in, in 2024. And what feedback have you had? Have you had sort of business owners coming to you and saying, hey, you know, we've got a roof and, and we'd like to do this too? Yeah, exactly. So uh, the kind of interaction that you're describing happen every week uh, now that we are fully established in Paris after our MIT experience. Uh, we, we moved back to Paris in January of this year. And every week, Roofscape Studio is contacted by condominium associations or people who just go on our website, roofscapes.studio, and say, hell, we are suffering from extreme heat. What can we do? So as of today, we've started feasibility studies for about 30 buildings in the Paris area. And we'll move forward with a few of them over the next year, including pilot project with public actors, uh, etc. In terms of funding, we prioritize non-dilutive funding for now. We raised a bit from MIT, from the city of Paris and its Bureau for Innovation mostly, uh, and the European Commission through its new European Bauhaus branch. Um, and I think for us, uh, we have currently raised enough to conduct our R&D and deploy our first pilot projects in Paris, but we'll be, we'll be looking for investors in 2024. I think before that, it's essential for us to prove that these solutions are technically possible, financially viable for homeowners, but, but mostly uh, environmentally beneficial for everyone. Yeah, you're in the show me stage. Have you had any pushback of people saying, hang on a second, I love our beautiful roofs, even if they boil us in the, in the summer. Um, this is an eyesore and it's going to look ugly. Have you, have you had any of that kind of pushback? Yeah, I mean, the question it? of aesthetic and the question of, of uh, what is right or wrong for a city is, is a really important one. I think uh, by th at the beginning of Roofscapes, we started working on Paris because we are from here and, and I think we love our city and how it looks. So the question of how to adapt uh, the building stock to, frankly, a climate that is totally different from, from what it used to be in 19th century when those buildings were erected is a big question. Um, and so I think we're leaving all our ears open uh, to to make sure that everyone in in Paris can have its voice being heard. We also consider that it's uh, our our role as uh, sort of like cultural actors to do something to open the dialogue on what should be climate adaptation in Paris and what should it look like. So we are co-organizing uh, with the support of the city of Paris, a rooftop festival actually in, in September in order to make sure that uh, actors from all across the board can come and participate in workshops uh, in co-designing what this new aesthetic is, is supposed to look like. Yeah, fantastic. Just looking at some of those images, stop by painting everything white as well to reflect the sunlight might help as well. Um, this is just the beginning of the conversation. Fingers crossed, good luck making sure um, and we're showing that it can uh, it can actually work and i look forward to talking to you again soon olivia Faber there, the co-founder of roofscape studio thank you for that and that's it for the show connect the world is up next i'll see you tomorrow we all do things our own way and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique you need a bed that fits you just the right way sleep number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless high-quality sleep every night 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.